0: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together today. And we have a lot to cover. And um, it is, uh, well, it's the Joe Biden speech day. And before uh, we talk about the speech, I'll probably talk about that later. I want to set you up for what you're seeing. Uh, you know, I, I'm back to it. The narrative machine the narrative machine. It's all about the narrative machine. There'll be a couple examples of the power of the narrative machine. We'll get to all that in just a moment. It's Ed Martin. We're here on the Pro America Report. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you're listening live, appreciate it very much. Uh, Please feel free to visit ProAmericaReport.com. If you hear something you like, you can uh, re-listen. You can listen to the show as a podcast, standalone links for each segment. You can also sign up for the daily email at ProAmericaReport.com. It goes in your email box at 5 a.m. West Coast time, 8 a.m. East Coast time. uh, And I look forward to uh, many of you signing up. I I work every day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. You get the uh, Pro America Report in your inbox every morning. So sign up over there. All right. So uh, look... We're watching the most powerful, most amazing uh, narrative machine we've ever seen. It used to be we were spun. It used to be we were, uh, you know, P- out PR'd. I'm talking about we the people, not even political parties, that the parties that had money, they could buy the spokespersons and the wordsmiths and all that stuff. They could have influence on TV because they had the power over businesses that bought ads and all the rest. But now we have this uh, unholy alliance, the Trinity of the narrative machine, and I just want to show you exactly how well it operates, how you know, how clearly it is being shaped, not only to influence what you hear every day, which is one thing, but also what you know to be the truth, what you then what you come to believe is the truth. So I'll get to the Joe Biden's uh, speech and, the, and and what's going on with that, my example there. But let me just start with the situation with Rudy Giuliani had his home, his apartment, he lives in an apartment in New York City. You know, he's the former mayor of New York, which is a job that's bigger than almost any job other than president the United States in terms of the size of the, of the budget, the size of the uh, population, the importance in the globe and all that it's a big job. So Rudy Giuliani's retired from that. He's a lawyer, and he has an apartment on Madison Avenue. And the Feds raided it to get all kinds of things: electronic, uh, um, uh, electronic um, uh, devices. I guess whether that's his, I guess phones or laptops or whatever. And uh, the Feds raided it. Now the the statement that has been put out, and we don't know. I think it's all unnamed sources. But this this is related to his representation of the Ukrainians and the possibility of campaign finance fraud. Now, campaign finance violations is, is something akin to the modern equivalent of, of a tax evasion. When you have somebody with lots of money and somebody with lots of influence, you, you, you're trying to find a way and you can't get them on anything real. And you say, well, I'll look into all their money and we'll see if there's some way they didn't pay their taxes or they, they cut corners or they did something dishonest. That's one way. And modern way, you, you campaign finance re, uh, efforts is a way to try because it's, it's very very complicated it's very byzantine and frankly lots of people play close to the edge they play close to the edge all the time i mean one example is the number of people in the swamp that lobby for foreign nations it's almost i know it's not uncountable it's countable but it's a lot of people and they get paid a lot of money and most of them don't register as foreign agents which is what you're supposed to do it's never been enforced it's not real they call themselves lawyers for them and all that stuff but here's my point Rudy Giuliani's home being raided was reported first by the New York Times, which means sources are leaking to the New York Times. And so here's the thing. You, You will take it as a as as truth that there is an investigation into Rudy Giuliani's Ukrainian ties or whatever it is. And that will sound after a year and a half or two years like something that must be factual when, in fact, we don't really know what that is. And my point here is to contrast that that's a narrative machine, big government, big media and big, uh, and big tech, all making sure that the message goes out that that's what happened. Now contrast that with what happened in the fall when the New York Post had the goods on Hunter Biden's laptop, and that it was, you know, it, he, he left it behind at a computer shop, and there was all kinds of emails and correspondence about the Ukraine and China and other things. And what literally happened was the media said, oh, that's Russian disinformation. And they had all kinds of people, big government, all kinds of former national security people, big government, extended big government. By the way, big government is not only the people in office currently. It's the people that use their government ties and their government influence and their government roles, even if it's past tense, as a way to bolster the the narrative machine. And so in this case, there were dozens and dozens of former swamp national security people, big government, who said, oh, yeah, it it might be Russian disinformation. And that's all they said. And then media covered it as uh, Russian disinformation. And so did big tech. By the time you were done, if you spoke about Hunter Biden's laptop, you were being shut down, being silenced, being banned, shadow banned or otherwise on big tech and big media. And it was the whole story was ignored. Six months later, the story was confirmed. And that's the power of the narrative machine. On one hand, we know nothing about any wrongdoing with Rudy Giuliani, but it's positioned out there. And and the real message is, if you're our political opponent, we will punish you. That's what it feels like to me. It doesn't feel like, oh, we're doing thoughtful research on things. It says, oh, we're in charge. You were uh, Trump's lawyer. You're a a high profile guy. You may or may not have done dumb mistakes. Possibly. I don't even know. We're going to punish you. And Hunter Biden, oh, we're going to protect you. You talk about the breakdown of the country in terms of confidence in our institutions. This this narrative machine picking and choosing, obviously, who is the winners and who's the losers, who will be the truth and who will be the lie. Obviously, it's very, very, very powerful, very effective and devastating. And so we move on to the Biden speech I mentioned earlier on a on a uh, on a, uh, a live stream that I do uh, every morning. I do a live stream over on Periscope as well as on YouTube. Uh, you go to the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles channel and also on Facebook Live. And I was saying, you know, watch what happens when they leak and they, and they do it on purpose. They give out the copy of the speech and, and Biden's speech when they, they gave it out in the afternoon. It's embargoed. You cannot actually, you know, read. You can't publish the whole speech because they want to have the speech in the evening, but you can talk about it. And so the media, the narrative machine goes into overdrive and it goes into overdrive about how the, the speech is an incredible, you know, prioritizing uh, those that are, are without and all this kind of stuff. It's four trillion dollars in spending. Four trillion is what he wants. And if you t- look at it closely, it says we're going to we need to get all this spending to stand up to China. Well, China's eating our lunch in almost every other way under Joe Biden. They're still sending fentanyl here through our Poros border. They're still stealing our tech. They're about to swallow up Taiwan. I mean, there's no China. China, all of the, you know, when the Chinese met with the Secretary of State blinking up in Alaska, they just laughed at him and lectured him. China's still putting people in camps, the communist regime. And so here we have the narrative machine, and you saw it. I, taught, I predicted it, that, that Joe Biden would do a good enough job on his speech. He's a professional swamp guy. He's been in the swamp 50 years. He knows how to give a speech that's poll tested and rounded off to make sure even the people that they offend will the people be the people they wanted to offend, that they wanted to get a rise out of, and that will work in the media because the media will jump on it. There'll be a race part of it. There'll be a class part of it. There'll be, in this case, his message to the rich and to the country is: we're going to tax the rich. We're going to tax the rich, and, and we're going to get back at the rich. We're going to get our money from the rich. Except you know what the very wealthy do when they see that you're raising tax rates? You know the the effective tax rate for a wealthy person in America will be about sixty percent, maybe seventy percent, depending on where you live. If you're dumb enough to live in New Jersey or New York or California, it'll be probably on, on your on your a dollar earned it, it will be somewhere around sixty or seventy percent. If you add in income tax, federal income tax state, uh, if if you're, you know, you'll pay payroll taxes, you'll you'll pay um, some payroll taxes. Some people are just you'll pay capital gains taxes way up. You'll pay property tax. What you have, the wealthy will dodge this. The wealthy will leave. The wealthy will escape. They can pay accountants. The middle class will be punished. The working ethos of the country will be devastated. It's a disaster. And yet the media narrative, the machine, the narrative machine will come over the top and say how glorious it is, how this is wonderful, how serious it is. We're going to get free college for everybody just by taxing the very rich. The very rich won't stay for it. And it it won't be what it costs. It's never what it costs. But boy, oh boy, you watch the narrative machine roll over the top. So if, you're, um, if, you're, if, you've, if you've ever wondered about the power of the narrative machine, just contrast, Rudy and the Ukraine, Biden and the Ukraine. One is absolutely nefarious and covered with breathtaking, you know, oh, breaking news. The other one is buried and it's the president of the United States and his son. Extraordinary. All right. We got to take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin. Don't forget, please visit ProAmericaReport.com. It's Ed Martin here on the ProAmerica Report. We will be back in just a moment. Please come back. <music> welcome back welcome back ed martin here in a pro-america report time to check in with john schlafly john schlafly is one half of the schlafly brothers they write the schlafly report which is published over at townhall.com our sister site also available on phyllis archive there this week's column is the floyd bill to weaken border and towns and uh, welcome john how are you
0: Uh, Fine, Ed, how are you today?
1: I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine now. I, I was texting with you off the air. So before we get to this one, I do want to just get your thoughts. Um, Rudy Giuliani's apartment is in, is uh, is um, uh, is rated. You know, they're going to, I don't know, check on whatever. Um, you and I mentioned that there's these lawsuits from Dominion against a, a wide array of people. What's your thoughts now? I mean, we're it, it, I'm, I, I get this sinking feeling that these some of these good guys and gals are in for a tough time because this lawfare thing works. You know, it, it can really, really tie people up how, what do you think
0: well it does work and anybody who's been involved in any type of lawsuit civil or criminal certainly knows the problems of the system from personal experience I'm sure many of your listeners have as I have but uh, and uh, but it appears the whole this this system appears to be uh, getting worse and that's really the theme of this week's column that we see how uh you know the this the unfairness of the system and the way in which it's being abused, and unfortunately, President Trump did not really gain control of the Justice Department during his four-year term as president, and uh, uh, you know that was part of the deep state there, and now they're have been given free reign to harass and prosecute Trump supporters while. Their friends on the outside are bringing civil suits. And, yes, it's a tough situation uh, that's going to require many, many helpful legal minds to uh, defend, to defend Mm -hmm. us, those of us who supported Trump, against the assault and the onslaught that we're all facing.
1: Uh, we're, ta- we're talking with John Schlafly in the sh- the column this week. Uh, as I mentioned, townhall.com has his columns uh, when they come out on late Tuesday night and uh, and also uh, over at com. All right, John, I, I do want to get to your column because the Democrats have a new act, the George Floyd Act, which is um, tries to put the police and the border patrol agents uh, uh, in a situation where they lose some of what what is often called uh, a qualified immunity, some of the protections that, hey, you're acting on behalf of the state in an emergency situation. Therefore, you know, you're going to have some protection. Now, I do want to highlight you recall, and you cited in the second uh, paragraph, there were patrol agents uh, Ignacio Ramos and Jose Acampeon, and they were pardoned by Trump, and they were, uh, they were convicted for, of doing their job. They were border agents, and they were really put in a tough, tough position. In fact, Phyllis Schlafly wrote a column on that, which you linked to We Need Compassion for Our Border Guards uh, back in 2007, uh, which is, explains it. But John, walk us through what happens if we move our Look, we're all against bad cops. We're all against uh, abuse. I mean, I'm against especially the Department of Justice, how it looks like they seem to do things that are more things that are unhelpful, at least to prominent people. See Mike Flynn. See, you know, Rudy Giuliani now. But uh, but what about this qualified immunity? What's the what is the balance of, hey, you've got to have law enforcement with the ability to do their job and then you've got to have them within the law? I mean, give us the balance here and why the balance seems to be slipping.
0: Well, I have to, uh, you know, I give credit to my co-author for uncovering the fact that this federal statute was used against the United States Border Patrol agents, Ramos and Compion. That was a horrible miscarriage of justice. But, um, you know, the vast, vast, overwhelming majority uh, of targets are local police. And, you know, this is a law that went on the books the federal the federal law passed during the Reconstruction period, uh, which was a time period when the federal government was using its you know, when the when the United States government essentially had martial law in the defeated southern states and uh, and it's a question of federal authority to prosecute local officials. And that's what the law is primarily used for. Qualified immunity um, well, that is a defense of reasonable, uh, where a police officer uses reasonable force. And what the George Floyd Act is wants to remove and eliminate the use of a defense by local police officers for their use of force. So that, in effect, so that the police officers are no different from, you know, any other citizen in the use of force and they can be sued and bankrupted and that of course you know that's another form of defunding the police uh, frankly uh, we all hear about the defunding the police and some democrats say oh no we're not really for defunding the police we're just for reforming them well you know if they can be sued for doing their job they they will go, they will disappear and as as you know you know the thousands upon thousands of police officers across the country in cities are hanging it up they're saying you know i'm ready to retire i'm not going to take it anymore and that leaves the citizenry at the mercy of a drastically higher crime rate that we now experience in urban in almost every urban area except detroit and you know you can look into how you know many of your listeners have seen the police the detroit police chief interviewed on Fox a dozen times, and he's explained why he's been able to maintain order in his city while uh, almost every other major city has seen violent crime spike by 30 or 40 percent in the last several years.
1: Hmm. Um, this is uh, this is uh, John Schlafly, was who we we're talking to, and the column goes on, John, to describe how um, even though it looks like it, they talk about qualified immunity. Um, what you're really seeing is targeting uh, of people who are not I- agreeable to the the powers that be, to the regime. You know, you as you say, there's the threat of uh, doxing of jurors, um, and in the case I want to move towards to, or the situation is where you cite two different two different judges, federal judges who in court cite statements, political statements by Donald Trump as one in one case as reason to keep in prison a Trump supporter uh, from the January 6th arrests. Another one is a federal judge who uh, ordered a a Trump supporter, a mother uh, of eight, you say, to uh, explain a satirical mask. And I guess my point here is that, you know, the federal courts or the court system, there is a sense that it's follow the leader, meaning. If federal judges will do it, if DOJ will sign off on it, it starts to become what's done, and it's hard to believe. I'm saying this, but it it does feel like it's been effective that Trump supporters are going to be suspect until proven innocent, and they're the suspect that you know the suspicion is going to be that they're lawbreakers, that they're outside of the law. Where am I wrong?
0: Well, you're correct that, uh, you know, the narrative, the liberal narrative is taking hold in the judicial system, which it should not. Uh, And just as, you know, just as the narrative, I'm afraid, infected the trial of the George uh, Floyd police officer in Minneapolis last week. But Mm -hmm. in the case of the you know, January 6th, where this has been characterized as a so called insurrection. In other words, as if the Trump supporters were trying to overthrow the United States government instead of exercising peaceful protest, which they had every right to do. And uh, so they're being prosecuted and kept, uh, you know, denied bail and in some cases solitary confinement under horrible conditions. And it's an outrage. It's an outrage. And, uh, you know, especially the mother who was reprimanded by the judge for wearing a a she her mask was a mesh. And she and the judge said that she was, you know, in contempt of court by wearing a mesh over her face instead of a completely opaque mask. And, you know, that's just the kind of thing, you know, these judges, uh, you know, the only you know, optimistic thing we can count on is that there's really too many of them for the judicial system to handle. I mean, all the people who've been arrested on January 6th is more than the the entire number of people who are typically processed in that court for in the course of a year. And the system can't accommodate, accommodate that many people. And so I do think that in the near future, Uh, They're going to have to uh, dismiss or settle the the vast majority of those cases. But in the meantime, they're being held uh, without bail. And that is an outrage.
1: Yeah. John, we're talking with John Schlafly. And John, you and I had an exchange uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, with John Schlafly's column runs over at townhall.com and is uh, is archived at uh, com. We were talking about uh, the description that uh, that was a Twitter thread where uh, a young-ish, young woman, looked like young, I couldn't tell her age, was talking about uh, a nonprofit she and her husband had started that was in that was sort of attempted to take over by what she called woke people. They started using all this language of oppression and they wanted to get everyone to change what they were doing and they sort of ran them off. But your response to me was this, meaning what we read together, is like the fight against the the, communism in the 1950s and earlier. Part of the anti-communist study groups at that time was to learn about the Marxist jargon, the telltale words and phrases that indicate somebody was probably a communist or had the, um, excuse me, or had communist training. When you watch the courts use the language of the left of insurrection of all. I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, uh, the ACLU uh, stoop to language that is like anti-freedom. And you're like, how come the ACLU is not on the side of freedom? They're on the side of wokeness, right? I mean, or whatever. Pick a topic. Glenn Greenwald is, is, is skewering everybody right now in journalism. But when the courts are doing it, I mean, it feels like the virus of this Marxist virus has gotten into a place. The body, uh, you know, politic or the the, the the judiciary, I'm not sure how you get it out.
0: Well, it, it's very disturbing, uh, Ed, and especially in our judicial system, which is supposed to be independent, a third branch of government, but, um, um, you know, there are principles that, uh, you know, date back centuries. And um, so it's, it's so unfortunate that, you know, judges and courts and prosecutors um, have been swayed by uh, certain concepts that only just sort of appeared in the last few years, and this whole business about you're referring to the, you know, where the, you know parents volunteering at their school, and suddenly they see that all the school materials are filled with jargon, you know, involving intersectionality and white supremacy and and uh, you know oppression and. Uh, All all of those things, you know, the jargon, you know, anybody who's, you know, uh, been around more than a few years will realize that those words were, you know, unheard of until a couple of years ago. And now suddenly those words are seen to be everywhere and they're redefining what America is all about. And we just can't let that happen, Ed. We just can't let it happen, and uh, your listeners and everyone else needs to step up and say no when you confront it on a personal level.
1: Right, right, all right, John. I'm running out of time. John Schlafly, thank you as always. A great column. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll take a break. Everybody, we'll be right back. Ed Martin here in a Pro America Report. Be right back. welcome back welcome back ed martin here in the pro america report Uh, our next guest is scott McEwen. scott McEwen is a prolific author among other things he's also an attorney he is the author of a couple of books you know one of them uh is uh american sniper he's also written a book called target america but the one that's just coming out is called hell week and beyond the making of a navy seal and uh first of all welcome to the program scott how are you today
2: good man thanks thanks very much for having me on
1: well, you're, you're welcome. And on your own website, which com, which I'll put up on social media, the, on the mission statement, it said, my job is to write books that honor w- all 100 warriors and chronicle the one. And of course, you're referring to the, the quote right below it about, from uh, Heraclitus from uh, saying that there's 100 men that fight 10 or shouldn't even be there, 80 are just targets, nine are real fighters, but one of them is the warrior. So h- I got to ask you, you, you now, you're spending your time uh, focused on these military men and uh, and what's going on. What what, what got you drawn to that you yourself I don't think you're a military guy were you were you in the military or just no, drawn no, to this history no, my
2: dad no my dad was a pilot in World War two and you know and I, I've had grandparents and stuff that were all military but no I I actually almost went to the Air Force Academy but elected not to and uh, and uh, you know I just I just find that uh, it's a fascinating subject uh, when I met Chris Uh, You know, before we wrote American Sniper, I felt like that story had to be told, and I, you know, I just have a lot of respect and a lot of uh, a lot of appreciation for that that one percent of our population that actually, you know, stands up and defends the other ninety nine percent, and that's why I write books about about American heroes.
1: All right, so let's talk about the Navy SEALs. The Americans have been fascinated with Navy SEALs for decades and decades, but the last 15 or so years, we've really kind of been there. Tell me about, it's called Hell Week and Beyond, the making of a Navy SEAL. How insane is the actual training? I mean, the the best of the best make it to SEAL school, and then only a few of them make it through. Walk us through what, what it's really like. Well,
2: I think what it's really like is, you know, it's 18 months of actual training that they do. And, you know, during that 18 months, one month in, they put them through what's called Hell Week. And, and there's a reason why they do it one month in. And the reason is because they want the attrition to be as whatever it's going to be. They want it to happen there because by the end of the 18 months, you know, the United States taxpayers have, have spent over $1 million per man to put them through air sea and land training you know just basically unbelievable a variety of training that your average SEAL every SEAL has to do in order to become a SEAL but uh, the first month at the end of the first month they basically go through what's called hell week and that is you know the toughest week I think most military uh, aficionados would say the toughest week of training you know in mankind and and uh, really if you make it through that then you are an unbelievable, you know, warrior, an unbelievable, if you will, mindset to get you through the rest of the training and to be the tip of the spear for the United States military.
1: So what does that week entail? Is it, is it, is it it's, it's, I mean, I, I know as I tell you, because I've read some of your book and I, I've read an excerpts of your book and read about it, but it's, it's, it's a half psychological, it's half physical and the other oh. half is, uh, I don't know what, I mean, you know, what, what is it really? I mean, what's it like? Give us the contours of it.
2: You know, um, it is, a crucible of pain, of, uh, of, of being kept awake for five days straight, no sleep. Uh, essentially, they force you to go through a series of physical runs, miles and miles of runs, uh, immerse yourself into the Pacific Ocean to the point of just above hypothermia, and essentially keep you in a a state of complete physical and mental exhaustion for as long as they can, and then determine whether you can take it. I mean, that's really what it's about, and whether you want to ring the bell and quit. And if you ring the bell, you're Mm -hmm. done. You're dropped on request, and you can never go back to it again. If you're physically injured uh medically injured break a bone break your back break your ribs which happens quite often you can go back and roll back into the into the hell week again but if you actually ring the bell you're done dropped on request and you can never do it again
1: Is, um, is the, so is the, has the training evolved? I mean, how long have the SEALs been doing this? And has the training evolved now? I mean, we hear a lot about how the military's got to have men and women and, you know, all equal things and combat and all that. But so, first of all, did the SEAL training start a hundred years ago or 50 years ago? And has it evolved today to be something different from back when it started?
2: Uh, they just celebrated their 50th anniversary. John F. Kennedy actually started the Navy SEALs. Before that, they were called, you know, Underwater Demolition Teams, UDT, which existed during the World War II. I mean, the, the guys that took out the bridges, took out, you know, things that stopped the invasion in Normandy. The, literally the first guys, before the first guys in the beach were the Frogmen to try and take out their mansions mm-hmm. their, their and their fortifications. But uh, the, the SEALs, as we know it, as a team... Started with John F. Kennedy in, and I believe it was 1960 60 itself. It could have been 61. Mm-hmm. I know, uh, right, right around there. And uh, as we know it, that's really the modern generation of SEALs that is there. But uh, the training has become, I guess, a little bit more medically and scientifically acute uh, to, to know what people can take. But it's never been softened, and there is no. They don't play the game of everybody gets a trophy, which we see many times in our, even in our military sometimes. It isn't that way. There's a reason why no women have been through it. I'm not being sexist when I say this. There's a reason why no women play professional football. And, 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 and And it has to do with the physicality of what's going on.
1: And do women ever try? I mean, can they try or is it not even possible? Sure, sure. You, they can try. It's
2: it's possible that they can work their way up, but there's never been a woman. I don't know that a woman has ever been through the complete the, the completion of uh, Hell Week and, or uh, made mm-hmm. it there. But I know that there's been some stuff in command to say you can get up there. But, you know, I don't think the SEALs have an issue with a woman trying, but I think the SEALs do have an issue with lowering the standards to the way that it is. And let all me tell right. you something, you know, there's probably, there might be a woman out there that can do it, but I don't know that, uh, I don't know that, you know, that physically, the rest, the de- it's so demanding what, what takes place over this 18-month period, you know, um, I don't know that it's going to be a practice that, uh, that uh, you know, let's just say
1: uh, it's all yeah. follow. Okay. Hell Week and Beyond is the book. It's called Hell Week and Beyond, The Making of a Navy Seal. Uh, Scott McEwen, And one last question, Scott. To do this book, you know, you got to get close to it, obviously. Do the, do, and by the way, let me make sure to say it's Center Street Press, available anywhere people want books. It's, uh, out in a few weeks from now, about three weeks from now. Um, can, you have to have access. Did you get access? And, and were the seals, uh, amenable? I guess you have a track record of writing about them in a serious way or about the military. So what kind of access did you have to get? And how did that work out?
2: Well, my access was. Well, yes, I do have access, and uh, yes, they do trust me uh, because you know I've written several books on Navy SEALs uh, now, and uh, this is my, actually my tenth book, and I don't mean that to brag. I'm just saying you know I've written quite a right. few, and you know my my writing is always pro military, and there's no hidden agenda, if you will, uh, and uh, um, you know I did ha- I do have access. I have seen the training facilities, you know, at at uh, Coronado many times, and uh, and obviously knowing the number of seals that I've known since I've known Chris Kyle and written American sniper. I literally know hundreds of guys. So I have interviewed to a man, many of them, you know, about what their experience Mm -hmm. was and buds and hell week and everything else. And that's really the genesis of this book. It's a story about, you know, about the grit, the mud, the freezing, the stuff I made it as accurate and as, and as brutal as I could. So, and if, if some, if some young man wants to become a seal, And I'm not trying to sell a book when I say this. I'm just saying read this because this will tell you exactly what goes on.
1: Uh, we're talking with Scott McHugh, and, uh, and uh, one last question, Scott. Some of, we have had a history of military men, uh, mostly men, I guess, although women. Uh, Joni Ernst, I think, is his, his former military, who go into politics. There have been more Navy SEALs in politics. I guess, it's, as you point out, it's, it started only 50-plus or fifty plus years ago. Are, 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 do you expect that because of the profile and because of the training? Are we going to see more SEALs in office? Does it work for them to go into politics, or is it sort of not, It's too much of a mess for them? What's your thoughts on that?
2: I sure as hell hope it works because we need them. (laughs) You know, we need that attitude. And you know, I, I love that. I love the attitude of never quit. I love the attitude that make the seals the seals. There is no lack of patriotism. The decisions they make will be for the soldiers and for this country. There will be no question on whose side they are. And, uh, you know, I I encourage more and more SEALs to do it. I mean, I wrote American Commander with Ryan Zinke, who was a congressman from Montana and then became Secretary of the Interior. And uh, Ryan Zinke said, I will make this country energy independent in four years. Three years later, we were energy independent. You know, we need this attitude. (laughs) We need this go get them" attitude. And that's really what it's all about.
1: All right, very good. Hey, thanks for the time, Scott. I know you're a busy guy, and congratulations. The book again is Hell Week and Beyond, The Making of a Navy SEAL, out in just a few weeks. Scott McEwen, I'll put it all up on social media and uh, keep us uh, in the loop, Scott. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Keep bringing the word.
1: All right, we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in a moment.
0: This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report. A daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by opposing radical feminism and representing a traditional conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin.
1: Yesterday, I told you how the history of the Monroe Doctrine, starting from Monroe's birth on April 28, 1758, is a lesson in boldness that every American should learn from. Today, I want to tell you how the threats America faces today perfectly echo those faced by Monroe's America in 1823. Facing threats of Russian colonization on American soil, President Monroe declared, the political system of the Allied powers is essentially different from that of America. We should consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety. Let's focus in on a key phrase in Monroe's quote. He called out the political system of the Allied powers. The Allied powers in this case is a reference to Russia and other European governments. Today, we're facing another political system from the Eastern Hemisphere that is incompatible with American culture. That system comes not from Europe, but from communist China. The political cultures of America and China are fundamentally different. In America, when we enter into a treaty or international agreement, we keep our word. In China, they don't make it a priority to follow through on any commitments. Don't even get me started on intellectual property. America has respect for IP ingrained so deeply in our culture that it's written into our constitution. China has no qualms about stealing our inventions, designs, movies, music, books, and more. President Monroe's doctrine stands resolute against today's liberals who claim that all cultures are equal. All cultures are not equal. The culture of personal freedom is objectively superior to the culture imprisoning a million people in concentration camps like what's happening in China. The culture of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is objectively superior to the culture of Chinese government surveillance and control. Let's reaffirm one more time that the Monroe Doctrine is a doctrine for all seasons. May it live forever.
0: This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report, and uh, today I want to finish by uh, giving a shout-out. I've never met him. I I wonder, no, have you ever met uh, Joe Rogan? Have you ever had him on the show anywhere?
0: I have not had him on the show, Ed, but I know where you're going with this,
1: and you know what? A couple of times when I listen to him, he makes a lot of sense, and what you're about to bring up is no exception. Well, so I've never met the guy, but he certainly seems like a dude that is amazingly talented, right? He's talented. He he uses uh, a lot of common sense yeah but he's had like a career as an announcer, a career in comedy, a career in podcasts i th- I don't know if he's a writer, but he's just had this sort of range of skills so he made a comment on his podcast, and this is where the world gets crazy. He said on his podcast now it it feels like i don't know for sure, but it feels like his podcast demographic is younger it's kind they of they are younger, my kids actually you know, listen to yeah. they
0: love Joe Rogan.
1: Yeah, right. So Joe Rogan's got this credibility with folks. And so, and so he says, someone says to him, uh, they're talking about um, uh, vaccines. And the, someone says something like this, says, uh, you know, what do you think about, what would you tell a 21-year-old? He said, you know, if I was talking to a 21-year-old who's healthy and exercises, eats right, doesn't have any problems, I'd probably say, you know, probably not good for you or something like that. Now that, as someone said on another channel, I heard him say this, it's a good phrase, that is what you call risk management you know if you're 21 you have a different risk profile than someone who's 51 like me or has comorbidities or whatever so that's what joe rogan said here but and and whether you like that or not i don't really care i mean i kind of agree with him but i don't care what you think about that here's where the world gets crazy the cdc and the white house is so touchy and so afraid of anyone who has an opinion that is popular that I guess is outside of their control because not only Fauci attacked Joe Rogan by name. Oh, I did not, not hear that. But also they sent a- yeah, yeah, they sent out, Fauci attacked him by name on one of the morning shows, and they sent out a deputy press secretary, which is, when you, when someone, when you, when you know someone's gonna get, uh, get a lot of grief and, and you don't want your name on it, Jen Psaki's like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that. And someone saying, is like, you do that one, cause you're gonna be, you're gonna be hated by a lot of people. They sent out one of these hates to say by name that Joe Rogan was misleading. Now, just for the sake of argument, What's more misleading than than Joe Biden walking out of the White House with a mask on and then saying the CDC says you don't have to wear a mask outside. So what's more misleading? Or you don't have to wear a mask if you're uh, vaccinated. And then there's Joe Biden wearing a mask in his own room on Zoom with the other world leaders. I mean, again, my point is only that imagine the world we're living in, which is not hard to imagine, but connect the dots where the White House and its senior people are. ...are attacking a very prominent... I mean, Joe Rogan's not nobody, so I want to say he's a podcaster. He's one of the leading commentators of a certain set of our society. But they're attacking him for something, as far as I can tell... Is something like what they do, which is not perfect uh, explanation or not perfect, but utterly common sense. In other words, if somebody walks outside with a mask on and keeps it on, especially if it's an older person, I don't think to myself, oh, my gosh, you're a lunatic. I think that person's worried. That person's scared. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be particularly particularly. I'm going to yell at him. I'm not going to call the cops or anything else. But the idea that Joe Rogan got under the skin of the White House and that they attacked him. Merely for having say, this was a opinion, yeah. Well, and this is what I thought. I, I would, and, and, you know, uh, Joe Rogan getting under their skin. That was one of this is one of the first moments in the first hundred plus days where I thought Biden's people really don't. They're in. They're insulated now. They're in a now they really are. They're in a bubble. I didn't think maybe they were in a bubble. They're in a bubble. If they think it pays to attack Joe Rogan, it doesn't pay. I, it, I think it only puts you in backfire. Total backfire, total backfire, yeah. So that was a really weird one. So watch that. All right, i got to run. I'm out of time. Thank you, Noah, our great technical director. Thank you, Joanna, for booking our guests. Thank you to you, the listeners, for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then.
0: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.